to. I'd appreciate that. I haven't met a lot of you, and then some of you I've known for a while, but it is good to be with you this morning in the absence of your pastor, and he'll be back with you next uh, Sunday. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, if you will. Father, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and unclean thoughts. I am a part of a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. We have forsaken you, Lord. The whole heart is sick, and the whole heart is faint, from the soles of the foot to the head. There's no soundness in our nation. But God, when we examine our character, our values, and actions, we're not living as a nation, your character. We're told that as the day approaches, lawlessness will increase. And most people will love the world more than they love you. And that lawlessness will increase. And that you, in return, will draw your people to you during this time. That we may not turn from you, but turn to you. And that we may not be ashamed of you. And we may glorify you and proclaim your word. Oh, praise you, Father. This morning, open our eyes that we might see, that we might see ourselves and that we might see the truth from your word. Open to us the truth of Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask you this morning, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to the very last chapter of John, John 21. And I want you to open your Bible there and leave it there because we're going to look at some things for a while. And I'm going to ask you for a moment to stand as I read aloud just about three or four verses, verses 15 through 19 of John 21, but now you hold that in your lap when we study God's Word, because we're going to be talking about all of that. John 21, beginning in verse 15. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, 
son of John? Do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said the third time to him, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, showed by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. You may be seated. As miracles stand, this one stands alone that we've looked at this morning and we're going to look at in John, the 21st chapter. It's unique in the fact that it is the very last that we have recorded, the very last miracle that Jesus Christ performed. And it's interesting because it's performed in the exact same place where the very first miracle recorded happened. And this was in the area of Galilee. And some of these men that are with him now was with him when that first miracle happened in Galilee. So he's returning to this place because there's some things that need to be done at this time. Sometime during that first Easter that we know, the risen Savior came to John, or rather to Simon, alone. And he came to him, and we know that he came to him at that time because the behind closed doors, the Bible tells us that the other apostles were excited, and they made this statement, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now we don't know what he said when he appeared to Simon. That is so private that you and I are never going to be allowed to intrude in that particular meeting. He appeared to him, the Bible says, uh, to Cephas and to, the tw- and to the twelve on the apostles that day at that time. Peter was the first to see Jesus of the apostles. And so during all that time, Peter is dealing with a lot of guilt and a lot of problems. An angel at the tomb, you remember when the women came, said he is risen and his disciples, tell his disciples and Peter. That was, a, that was pointed to Peter for a purpose. Peter's dealing with a lot of things right here. And I believe that because of his public denials... And because that he said that he would never turn his back, he would go with him to death, he realizes that none of that happened. And he's living with the guilt of that right now. And surely all of this is directed to Simon Peter 
and all that is going on in his mind. We're going to look at three things this morning. The crisis of rebellion, the course of restoration, and the commitment of renewal. And I don't want you to hear a sermon. I want you to speak to yourself this morning as God speaks. There's some things that you and I need to examine in the attitude of Peter in this particular passage that we're looking at. I want you to see Peter's actions. Verse 3, we we want to examine those very closely. There is the phrase that says, I am going fishing. Now Peter had not received the word from God to go fishing. But he says, I'm going fishing. But I want to share something with you that we don't get in the English. You have to see it in the Greek. I want you to see... If you have a King James Version, you'll get a little closer to it than any other translations. But the King James Version says, I go a-fishing. And the interesting thing about that statement is that it is a Greek statement that when you see it, you understand it better. What it means in Greek is the final departure of one who ceases to be another's companion. I'm leaving. That's what he's saying. I've disappointed Jesus. He can probably never use me again. And I'm leaving the ministry. And I have nothing else to do but go back to fishing permanently to that which I left. That's what's going on. Now you begin to see the crisis of rebellion that's going on in this man. In Luke 5, the Bible tells us, From now on, you will be catching men. It's what he told Peter and those apostles. But they're not. He's not. He's turned away. Let me tell you something about this. You can apply to your life and I can apply to my, my own life. It's so much easier to desire to go back to the way of life that I lived than to go and confess I'm wrong. All of us live that way. That's the way it is. And here's the thing. The flesh led Peter, not God. Led him to go fishing. I believe he thought, how can God ever use me again? And so I might as well go back to fishing. That's Peter's action. But I want you to see something else. I want you to see the apostles' response in this particular chapter. And I hope you have your Bible open and I want you to see all these in God's Word. I want you to see what happens to them in that All of them said, I will go with you. I'll go with you. Seven of the twelve are now going. Peter takes six with him. Here was Peter, a gifted man, an aggressive witness, a natural born leader. He's deserted his commission and there's going to be six others go with him. Let me tell you something, friend. You need to understand that when you desert what God has called you to do, you're going to take somebody with you. It's going to happen. Doesn't matter who it is, when you decide you're going to get off course, somebody is going to get off course because of what you're doing. Now seven of the remaining 11 has decided to go away from God, from His calling on their life. Now Satan couldn't keep Christ off the cross 
say he couldn't keep his body in the tomb. But I want to tell you something. Salvation had been proclaimed, procured, and poured out in the blood of the precious lamb. But he could keep the word from being proclaimed. That's what he tries to do today. And that's what he'll do in your life if you give him that opportunity. I remember a few years ago in another pastorate, there was a woman who came into my office that I'd never seen. She wasn't a member of my church, but I pastored. But she came into my office and she sat down and between great sobs, she told the story of two sons who had spiritual and moral problems, deep problems. And then she related that years earlier, when they were small boys, their father, her husband, had gotten his feelings hurt in church. And he decided he was going to leave. And when he left, he took his wife and those two impressionable little boys. Until now, they were in deep, difficult problems. Friend, you'll influence somebody, especially if you leave God's calling on your life. The crisis of rebellion. But I want you to see now the course of restoration. I want you to see what's going on here. Jesus takes some definite steps to bring his people back where they're supposed to be, to restore Peter and these apostles. I want you to notice what happens. These men became failures. Now, these men were experts. They didn't just fish on the weekend. They fished for a living. And the Bible says in verse 3 there that you're looking at, but that night they caught nothing. Listen, outside of God's will, you're a failure. Outside of God's will, nothing will go right for you like you want it to. You're going to always be hampered by it. And that's what Christ is teaching these men. You are working in the misery of the flesh. Nothing happens in the misery of the flesh. You'll always be a failure. Verse 4, look at it. It says, it tells us that Christ does not appear to them during the night. Now, he could have, but he don't appear to them at night. They're left to themselves. That's the misery that they're in. Friend, when you're left alone without Christ, you've got problems. I've got problems. Nothing seems to work when I leave Christ out of this. That's misery. That's misery. John 15, 5 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's true. Have you noticed that in your life? I've noticed it in mine. Have you ever wondered why you failed? Why you're just plain miserable in your spirit? Friend, it's because you're doing it without God. Because you're doing it without God. That's the misery of the flesh. But now I want you to see the miracle of the fish. Jesus Christ, by His almighty power, puts fish right where they can get it. What a miracle. That tells us. I want to show you something. Once you go back, you're still in verse 21. I want you to notice what the verse, very first verse of that chapter says. After this... Jesus revealed himself again. That word revealed is more than just being made known. It's a lot more than that. Let me tell you what it is. It means they beheld him. They took 
him in in all of his godliness that very time when he came to them because he revealed himself to them. They needed that. They needed that miracle. Verse 4 tells us what it was all about. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. They didn't know he was there. Friend, when you're out of God's will, you won't know when God shows up. You know that. We miss His coming in our life because we're so caught up in something else. We've got this or that that we're dealing with and we just miss Him. We miss Him. In the misery of the flesh, nothing seems to work. And especially in the misery of the flesh, we will miss Jesus Christ. He will miss His coming. We will not even know what's going on. You'll remember in a chapter right before the one you've got open before you, Mary, immersed in sorrow over the death of her brother, did not recognize Jesus Christ. You remember that? Did not recognize Him. She did not know it was Jesus, the Bible tells us. You'll not know. He'll pass you by. And how many times has He come by when you are caught up in something else, your own misery... And you missed him. You missed him. I want you to see now. Jesus Christ knew all of this. He knew that they had no fish. And to remind his disciples, he says to them over the stretch of water. Now remember, they still do not know it's Jesus. Over the stretch of water, he sort of hollows out at them. And he uses this term. He says, children. Some translations say boys, lads. He says, children. Why does he call out children to them? I'll tell you. Because he wants them to remind them that without him, they can do nothing. And that without him, they have been a failure. They need to know that they have failed as they are so that they can begin to know God can make a difference in their life. And friend, I want to tell you, until you realize you're miserable on the inside and everything's gone in your life that you wanted and planned something else in its place, it'll stay that way until you put God in the place where He's supposed to be in your life. He addresses the apostles. They don't address Him. And He makes them conscious of their emptiness until you know and I know that something isn't right and we become conscious of it nothing's going to happen until that does and God supplies his need through making us realize our needs that's the way he works he is telling these men it's not by your eloquence or your power, or your persuasion, or your personality, that you get done what you're trying to get done. It's all due to the sovereign power of God. That's what he's saying. At this unknown, now at this time they did not know who they were talking to, but at this unknown stranger's command, they follow him. They do what he says to do. 
And at his word, these worn, torn, these worn out, dead, almost feeling men having uh, fished all night and cost nothing, he tells them to go cast out the net again. And they did. I, didn't know, I don't understand why they did, except God just put it in them. They did. And the Bible says that you remember their nets came back full, 153 fish. The psalmist said, in keeping his command, there is great reward. And there is. At his orders, they obeyed. And this was a point that the disciples recognized him. Verse 7 says, The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said, It is the Lord. It is the Lord. He recognized him. The others didn't. You know, he was a pretty perceptive man anyway, uh, John was. But he knew that it was the Lord. Now, when God's work begins to happen, and when he works in front of you, these children had no problem of saying it is the Lord. I'll tell you, when God works in your life, you ought to say it is the Lord, friend. It's not by your ability or your prowess. It's God. We need to say it is the Lord. Now the actions lay heavy on these men's hearts. They know what it's all about. And I want you to see what he's doing. We've seen the misery of the flesh, the miracle of the fish. Now I want you to see the mercy of the Father. Oh my goodness. Look what happens. He supplies everything they need. He says, come take breakfast with me. Come and eat with me, he says in verse 12. That warm fire, those fish, that great time together in fellowship was all they needed. And I want to tell you, that's all you need and that's all I need. That fellowship with Christ, that warm fellowship, the loving call of the Savior who says, come back to me. That's what we need. In fact, Matthew 11 says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Oh, the mercy of the Father. He's all you need. He's all I need. It was John who first recognized him. But listen, it was Peter who took off after him. That just blesses my heart because I believe when real, real brokenness comes to your heart and my heart, we'll be the first to run to Jesus. I believe that in your life. I believe that in my life. It's happened in my life. When Christ reveals himself, and you know it, Peter had to take off. He couldn't stay where he was, and he was the first to come to Jesus. When a man's confession and repentance is real, he'll be the first to go to Jesus. It'll happen. We've looked at Peter's action, the apostles' response, but we're just getting to the good part. Because maybe you have looked at that like I've looked at it and you wondered what in the world is going on. We've seen the crisis of rebellion, the course of restoration, and now the commitment of renewal. I want you to see what's about to happen. The Lord Jesus Christ 
brought them to this point. The rebellion has been exposed. They cannot get around it. And the restoration is beginning. And this is what I want you to see. After they had eaten, they would finished this great meal, fellowship with the Master. Things had sort of settled down a little bit. And when this had happened, Jesus Christ goes to the person, the one that is leading it all, to the key person. In this departure, he goes right to Peter because that's the problem. Notice carefully the setting. In the confrontation that comes after eating, I want you to see some things. You you remember the denial of him, Peter against Christ, began, started out when he, when uh, at that confrontation, when he had eaten the Lord's Supper, he had that meal with them. And now it's all coming back. He's having another meal with them. You remember also after eating, Jesus specifically addresses Peter, the key person. And he says in this confrontation, before a fire, he begins to talk to him. You remember it was before a fire when he at the palace denied he knew Jesus Christ. All this is coming back. Jesus is arranging it to happen. The denial came around a fire. And he's denied again. And then I want you to notice that Jesus Christ, before he was put on the cross, made a reference to the smitten sheep and shepherd. And now he will speak to them again about his scattered sheep. He says, feed my sheep. Now, three denials have been made. Three affirmations must be made. Look at verse 15. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These what? I want to tell you, theologians, real theologians, have wrestled with this thing for a long time. Seems to be that the majority of them believe that he's saying, do you love me more than you love these men that are with you? But I think he's saying, do you love me more than you love fish? He's not even comparing him to other men. I believe he's comparing him to the work that he'd been doing. Do you love me more than these? These fish. Peter, do you love me more than your old job of fishing? Peter said that he was going fishing. And Jesus Christ goes straight to his heart as he begins to bring all this back to him. Do you love me more than these, than fish? Jesus does not say when he's dealing with Peter, he doesn't say, well, just forget it and come on. No, he's going to make him face his sins until he confesses them and he turns from them. Each time, He will bring him back to that. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. Now I want you to notice the question that's asked each time. time The first time that he says, he says, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me? The Greek word for love that Jesus uses right here is the word agapo. Now, agapo is a strange word. it's, It's a word that means I look at something and I see the value of it, and I love it because it's value and it's so precious to me. That's what agapo means. We could shorten it down some. It means a love that recognizes the worthiness of the object that is loved. Simon, do you love me? Now notice Peter. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But the word that Peter uses for love is not agapo. It's phileo. Phileo is another word. That's where we get our word Philadelphia from. Phileo has a lot of slang to it in our society. But phileo means a friendly love. I love you for what I can get out of it from you. That's what phileo means. The pleasure that I get from you. That's what I like. We might say it this way, that it's a love of liking. I love you because I like that. And where agapo is a love of preciousness, This is a love of pleasure. Now you let that hang right on your heart for a while. The first two times Jesus says, If you love me with this love of preciousness, feed my sheep. The new believers, the lambs, the mature ones, the sheep, feed them. And then the second time, Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. But he's saying, I love you with a love of, pre- of pleasure, not a love of devotion or a, it's a, or a love of emotion. It's a love of pleasure. He says that back to him twice. And then something significant happens in verse 17. He says to him this last time, And it's mentioned here, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. But it's interesting. You don't see this unless you see the Greek. In the Greek, Jesus uses the very same word for love that Peter has used All three times. What he's really saying is, with the very same words, that is phileo, he's saying, Peter, do you even love me with a love of anything that that you get from me? Or a love of fondness? Do you even have that love for me? The Bible says Peter was grieved. Not because Jesus had asked him that question three times, but because the last time Peter was grieved, because that third time Jesus used the very same word for love that Peter had used all three times. Peter is saying each time, you know I have a fondness for you, Lord. You know I have a fondness for you. Verses 18 and 19 almost seem to be an abrupt change in what is happening and what is said, but it's not. 
The clue to all that's happening is seen in these verses. And it indicates Peter's grief over the language that Jesus used. Jesus foretells Peter's death. He says, Peter, right now you dress yourself, but the time is coming when somebody is going to come and dress you. Now you go where you want to go, but someday some man or someone will come to get you, and they will take you where you do not want to go. This was in reference to the cross, the crucifixion that Peter was going to go through. History tells us he was hung on a cross. Some believe upside down. He said, that's coming. And all that Peter has said and all that he's looking at and hearing coming into him just crushes in over him at this time. And the Bible says he says this because of how Peter will die. Peter you will have that love of devotion. Right now, you just have the love of emotion. But I want you to see what he says in verse 19, or Christ says to Peter, follow me. Follow me. Let me tell you, Peter has set an example for us. The next verse indicates, verse 20, that after this, com- after this conversation that they have, Jesus begins to walk along the shore, Peter right behind him, and the other apostles behind Peter. Friend, I want to tell you something. Peter did learn the difference between a love of emotion and a love of devotion. Peter tells us this. I want you to see what he says in God's Word here. In 1 Peter 1, 22, Peter says this, writes this as God leads him, having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly, that's phileo, brotherly love, having put yourself As a brother in brotherly love, that you're supposed to do. But then he goes on and say, love. And he uses the word agape there. Peter does. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. From a pure heart. Church, I want to say something to you. I want you to listen very carefully. If you're going to be Judgment Day Honest with God. Would you have to say as you look at your heart, I have a love of fondness, a love of emotion, but I don't have a love of devotion. Would you have to say that to God, being the only one looking at your heart today and knowing you? Would you have to say that? Jesus says, if anyone loves me, and he uses agape, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Friend, I just want to tell you, and I want you to know the joy that can come from this. I want you to know 
that Peter did have that. He decided to follow God until he could say that, that it's a love of devotion. It's not just emotion anymore. It's devotion. Friend, I want to tell you, there needs to be a lot of repentance, just as there was that day. Let me just give you something that I want you to listen to, and then I'll close. I want to give you some signs of repentance. There's a lot of people who think they've repented, and there's just no fruit to back it up. Their names are on the church roll. They've been baptized. They've got a Bible. But friend, when you look at their life, it's no different on the inside of the world. I want to show you some signs of repentance. The first is a sign of earnestness. That means I take great care in how I live. Let me give you a second sign of repentance. It's vindication. What do you mean? It's vindication of yourself. It's repentance of what is thorough and continual. In other words, you're never going to let sin back up in your life and stagnate. You're going to stop it as soon as you're aware of it. That's the vindication. Let me give you a third sign of repentance. It's indignation. Indignation is godly sorrow. Do you have sorrow over the way you're living and the pain that you bring? Let me give you another sign of repentance. It's a sign of fear. Fear of deceitfulness of sin, of hiding it in your heart, living with it, coming, becoming comfortable with it. Let me give you another sign of repentance. It's longing, longing of fervency to seek God and His kingdom and His righteousness above everything else. Do you have that in your life? Let me give you another sign of repentance. It's zeal zeal. It's, it is the mark of repentance. The mark of repentance. Zeal for God and zeal for holiness. Do you have that in your life? And last of the signs of repentance is avenging of wrong. Practicing in your own life restitution and godly sorrow. Do you do that? Do you live that way? Friend, I want to tell you something. We're in a mess. And I'll tell you what I see. I see in the middle of a mess, many people who are godly, or say they're godly, are living like the world. As the vice gets a little tighter and squeezes it a little more, those people who are church people begin to dribble and drop along the way. I want to tell you, if ever God's people is going to stand for what is right and righteous is now, there's never going to be a better time. Are you willing to do that? I know if you're a tender of this church, you normally don't have an invitation, but I'm preaching today. We're going to have an invitation. I don't know what God's dealing with you about. You know. 
But friend, I want to give you an opportunity to get it right. Tomorrow may be too late. I want to just ask you to stand right now. Your head's bowed. And if God speaks to you and He speaks to you to make something public, you feel free to do that. But you deal with God right now as you stand there in your heart, no one but you and God. Do you love Him with devotion or is it just emotion? I'll die with you, Lord. But He didn't. And the pain it brought. Would would you get things right with God? Whatever it may be. You don't have to tell me or anybody else. But you can tell God. He knows. And you can come clean with Him. Do you really love Him? I mean, do you really love Him? Father, as we bring this invitation to a close, we know that Your invitation continues. As You said to Peter, You say to us, in spite of all the garbage that we carry, Come on, Peter. Come on, Kent. Come on, whoever you are, and follow me. Oh, God, that that might happen in this place today. That it might happen in the lives of my own life, the lives of each of us that are in this place. We will examine our love for you, and that if Jesus said to us, do you even love me with a love of emotion? that we might be able to say in all truthfulness, Oh, God, we love you with devotion, with all we are, and all that we will be till you take us home. Father, I pray your blessing on this fellowship, on those who are here today. And I pray, God, that you would stir this place until the fire would burn across this town and this county of what you're doing in the lives of people who love you with a love of devotion. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Lance.